0: You are listening to the 3CR podcast of In Psychedelia. In Psychedelia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2pm. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. org. Good
1: afternoon and welcome to the Radiothon special of In Psychedelia this Sunday afternoon, the last day of Radiothon, so please, uh, if you would like to uh, continue to... Keep listening to all the things that 3CR has to offer. Call now and donate, 94198377. MV is on the phones and ready to take your calls, 94198377. Uh, It is in psychedelia. On the show this afternoon, we do talk about drug policy, drug issues, the intersection of all of those uh, discussions. And... um, and everything else that goes on in society around those things. And sitting across from me, I have uh, Ash Blackwell. Ash, how you doing? Afternoon. And you're, we're, we're live on Facebook right now. <laughs> we're live on multiple platforms <laughs> this afternoon. <laughs> uh, and also uh, Peter Wern. Peter. How are you doing?
0: Really good, Nick. Great to be here.
1: Uh, Peter Wern, uh, formerly of YSAS and um, many other hats as well. Peter is going to tell us some stories, maybe, I'm hoping, maybe from the 80s today. Yeah, we can 70s. do the 80s. Yeah, yeah. All right. We'll have a have a bit of a wrap around and uh, see what there is to see. And also, Greg Denham. Greg. Hi, Nick. How are you doing? Uh, and Greg Denham is uh, currently working with VADA, the Victorian Alcohol and Drug Association, but um, LEAP uh is the law enforcement action partnership. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today and also, We've done many other things in the past as well So that's what we're going to do So again, Radiothon um, where uh, The goal is $250,000 That's about the amount um, that, it, that it takes To keep the radio station going for one year uh, So that's not for our show today So you don't have to have super deep pockets today If you've just got a little bit Just a little bit uh, You can donate online at 3cr.org.au Forward slash donate Or by the phone 94198377 um, And help keep community radio on air. Um, is there any anything else that I need to say about that right
2: now? <laughs> uh, I think just that, um, like, 3CR, this is where you hear the stories that aren't broadcast on the mainstream, even, even on some of the other community radio stations. This is where you hear the real radical radio. This is where you hear voices from the street, from people affected by issues. This is the place that gives them a voice in the discussion. So please... Uh, if you do have the capacity, pledge, donate, keep, keep 3CR on air, not just for this show but for Freedom of Species. that was before us, Clearing the Air that comes after this show each week and all the other shows uh, across the 3CR network.
1: Um, some of the things that we'll be talking about this afternoon. Oh, Peter?
0: Uh, I was just wondering uh, if it's okay if we, we, we together just acknowledge in this day and age and with the current issues that are going on that we're meeting on Aboriginal land... And that we're all really privileged to be on the land and remember the amazing contributions Indigenous people have made to culture, to spirituality and to our sense of ourselves. Because it just seems like there's a lot of, uh, you know, it's a funny time in Australia at the moment. And I think the more we can remember our origins and remember also our past guilt and sins, it's a good thing to acknowledge that this land was never given up freely, that it was taken
1: That's right, and um, also on that, a number of. I mean, and this is something that we just don't hear about almost at all. But uh, drug and alcohol issues uh, negatively affect Indigenous populations much more than the rest of us. Uh, I I mean, we saw. uh, I I still can't quite wrap my head around the fact that we had this intervention during the John Howard eras, where uh, era, era, yeah, um, where. Aboriginal people were not allowed to buy alcohol and there were specific restrictions placed upon them as a racial class. We created law in this country for a specific racial class and said that there are certain rights that you don't have because only because of your race. And we did that in Australia 15 years ago or how it wasn't that long ago. Why do we keep doing these things? We, we th-
2: <laughs> I think so. I don't have to that. Something that the um, students for sensible drug policy uh, and many other groups are focusing on at the moment is, are the laws around public drunkenness and how yes. they particularly affect Indigenous groups. And um, I don't know. It's kind of like there's a lot to say about that. Like one of the one of the talks that I heard um, last year, I think it was where Mick Palmer, former police commissioner for the AFP. Um, spoke about his history as a northern territory police officer I think thirty years ago maybe even more and like they actually had a revolt within the um within the police they essentially just went this is stupid like we are just going to refuse to enforce these laws and there was a whole group of northern territory cops that he was <laughs> a part of that just st- refused to enforce those laws and the fact that we're cycling back around to have that discussion again 30 40 years later is it's really demoralizing i think
3: yeah look i i agree but i also think too that um there are there are conservative views on both sides of politics and i think gaining that sort of conservative Um, well, and in many cases racist view, um, is is a political game and we see it all the time. And and the intervention um, was, in in my um, opinion, an opportunity for Howard to reassert um, himself in terms of that sort of racist element within society um, to ensure that, you know, the Pauline Hansons and others don't gain that ground. And I think that's what a lot of this is about, you know, whether it's refugees, whether it's Know, drugs whether it's Aboriginal populations it's about reasserting themselves and ensuring that they do still have a stake in that in those sort of issues and and um, p- politicizing um, issues which should be practically in in many respects health- based health and well-being based we should be addressing these issues through health and well-being and putting resources into into you know issues not not just um, vilifying people who and um, in many respects, making their lives more difficult um, than, the, than, than they are because of you know consumption of alcohol. Because we know, if you put massive restrictions on on things like alcohol consumption, inevitably it leads to greater harm. So um, we need to have more evidence based um, approaches towards those issues. It's
0: it's a great thing you say about evidence, Greg. Because I haven't seen an evaluation measuring the impact of that policy and the uh, the carrying out of that policy. Within, uh, within aboriginal and distant communities and i know they tried to roll out that policy in uh, different sp- places places sorry around uh, around uh, australia and i think there were a couple of places in victoria and basically saying oh this is about uh, behavior and a certain type of behavior not about a, a race but I don't even know whether those things... You never hear about it anymore. You don't know what the impact on those communities has been. So if you're going to bring in these laws and these changes into the way we organise society and people live in society, we have a responsibility to evaluate those, those things.
1: That's something that's been missing a lot from these sorts of policy discussions. Even though every now and then we do have things like the uh, Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody, uh, which happened a few years ago now. Um, Yeah, like like a while ago. Um, And and this year, over eighty community uh, community groups got together to uh, call for the Victorian government to abolish the offence of public drunkenness, um, which has been largely because it's been targeted at Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, people. Uh, And this follows. um, Tanya Tanya Day uh, was a Yorta Yorta woman who died in late 2017 of a brain hemorrhage from a head injury that she sustained while in p- police custody, and that's just one of many, many, many stories that are out there um, of how uh, these are. I mean, that's a that's a drug law, public intox- intoxication, mm-hmm. and it's being un, uh, unfairly used um, against Aboriginal people, and we that. Why? Why are we still doing that sort of thing? Well, it's, it's,
0: it's also used with discretion, and right. so one of the one of the issues we have, just like uh, we have discretion around um, uh, crime diversion programs for young people, that if you look at the stats in Victoria, a Caucasian fourteen year old committing an act of Social annoyance, or maybe even breaking the law in a many, very, very minor way, the officers that charge or uh, apprehend that young person they have a choice about whether they can defer them to a crime prevention program, which means there's no charge, and the young person has no permanent stain on their record or or, or any any record of that. You're ten times more like, likely to get diversion if you're Caucasian than if you're Indigenous. 10 to- for the same charge, not a different charge.
1: And there's really only one explanation, which is personal bias. Well, well,
0: well, well one of the things that's more insidious is that when they, when they dug down a bit deeper to try and work out what this was about, one of the th- solutions or suggestions that came to mind was that police officers, not from, a, not from a, a, a bad place, were just making an assumption that Aboriginal children had terrible home lives. Much more worse home lives than Caucasian children. And so therefore we were doing them a favour by putting them into the justice system. Mm. I mean, well, well, yeah. well, I'd like to ask: How many people come out of our justice system better for the experience?
1: It feels a very it, that to me just feels like very sort of uh, colonizing thinking. Absolutely. It's the kind of thinking where I know better than you about what you need in your life, um, so I'm going to infl- You know, I'm going to put my values on you, and, and that's going to make you a better person, uh, and that's what you need to be a better person.
3: The other issue too is is that I know that um, the offence of public drunkenness drunkenness is um, used as, um, a, I guess, a means of control by police to deal with, um, not civil unrest, but, but if someone may be a bit loud or a bit raucous but not intoxicated, they may have been drinking but not, certainly not intoxicated, that that offence is used by police to take people off the street and put them off the street for, for a certain amount of time and also fine them heavily. The, the, the fine for public drunkenness is several hundred dollars. So... Um, It's used as a way, as a a tool by police, really as a kind of control method. Um, Although it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be there, public drunkenness, as a welfare tool for people who were so intoxicated they couldn't look after themselves. So it's just, Mm. it's almost become sort of a a, a tool for police to use um, in terms of trying to manage people who may be a slayer who may be a little bit intoxicated, but oh, we don't like you, so we're going to put you in, you know, in lock-up for four or five hours.
0: What? And this is where welfare <clears throat> morphs into justice and that often laws that are brought in mm-hmm. that, are, that are ostensibly for the, for the protection of people suddenly become a way of controlling or even persecuting people. And that's why in the drug debate, I'm so worried about the health overlay and not a human rights overlay. Because really, when you think about it, like let's take public drunkenness. How am I assessed for public drunkenness? That's
1: what I was going to ask. How, so they get so, a breath though out? No, no, no. I,
0: and I've, I, asked this question 20, I asked this question 20 years ago. I said, if I'm driving a motor vehicle, I know that I cannot drive that motor vehicle if I'm more 0. than 0.05 over. Two drinks. If I'm walking down the street, how do you know I'm drunk? How do you know? You don't give me a breathalyzer. So I suggested that if you want to do something about public drunkenness, pick a number. Make it 0.15. You can't be drunker than 0.15 blood alcohol content in a public place or, you know, whatever. And, and no one supported it weird. No I'm one not, actually supported this because yeah, there'd be no one at the no <laughs> football or cricket yeah. because yeah. Everyone, <laughs> would, everyone would be breathalyzed and sent home. So where you have discretion, and Greg can speak more more, uh, more uh, inform- in an informed way than I can about this. I think it is a farce, so it should be behaviour based. So if I'm creating a nuisance and abusing people and swearing at people, or being a, an, an absolute pest, look at the behaviour. The drug has got nothing to do with it, and that's what that's that's what we try to in, in, encapsulate in the drink driving laws. We're saying you can drink, but you just can't drive.
1: Mm. Uh, It is 3CR Radiothon 94198377. That's 94198377. You can call in now. MV is waiting on the phones uh, to take your donations. Uh, We've got a a, a target um, today. Gosh, it's... uh $750, $750, but we have um, checked off some of that. Thank you to Jules Dazzle, Judith Peppard, uh, Matthew Thomas and MV for donations. Oh, and Pano Russo um, for your donations so far uh, to the 3CR Radiothon 94198377. Um, so, uh, Greg, you were, you were um, looking over before how is public drunkenness defined? How do, how do, is it just up to the discretion of a police officer? Pretty much.
3: Pretty right. much, It's on their observations. And, uh, and look, I recall when I was in policing that if a person uh, pleaded not guilty to public drunkenness it was a very difficult charge to prove because um because it purely relied on someone's observations a police officer's observations which included things that you know might um might lead to the assumption that a person is intoxicated things like you know breath words eyes um you know unsteady sort of thing slurred Mm. words type of thing but i but i can I just add quickly, too, that uh, you know uh, I, I was in policing for quite a while and um, a long time ago I recall working at what was the police headquarters in William Street um, and there was a file, quite a thick file, about public drunkenness. And mm. um, this issue has come up time and time again about removing the law of public drunkenness. And each time, it, it and it has actually been supported by police. So police, mm. police really don't like having to lock people up for drunkenness on many occasions, even though they do use it now as a bit of a tool, you know, to sort of control people and mm. to put um, rowdy people away. Um, they would rather have, I think, in many circumstances, um, sobering up centres, um, you know, facilities for people to go to when when they're intoxicated. And, and they, they really do, or they are, you know, potentially at risk. Um, but the government said, no, it's too expensive. It's cheaper to let the police keep doing it and let them lock people up, then provide those resources. I
1: wonder, though, I mean, cheaper from what perspective, though, because do they not take into consideration the cost on those individuals' lives and then how that will affect their productive... Just being real crass about it, but their productive capacity as an industrial citizen in our capitalist nation. If, this if, is, this will affect yeah, somebody's ability to work properly Nick, or to... Nick, if, we,
0: if we measured the cost-effectiveness of our social and justice policies, we wouldn't be building more prisons. No, we wouldn't. Because building prisons is the most economically stupid thing to do and creating more beds in prisons. And in fact, in America, in Europe, Western Europe, people are walking away from building more and more jails because it is just economically and socially unproductive. No-one in Victoria comes out of prison a better person because of their experience.
1: And that's something... That's going to be um, a theme of discussion uh, at the Support Don't Punish event on Wednesday, the 26th of June. We'll talk more about that shortly uh, right now on 3CR. It is radiothon as well, 94198377, or the website, 3cr.org.au. This is Eastwood with Golden Morning on in Psychedelia.
2: she said they are sorrow
4: It's
1: Eastwood Golden Morning on in Psychedelia on 3CR. It is. Uh, 3CR Radiothon time 94198377 um, MV is waiting on the phones um, We've been talking about um, justice issues, I think um, this is um, a good a good theme overall really, because Support Don't Punish is coming up Support Don't Punish is a day of action uh, which happens on the United Nations um, Day, uh, now what do they call it, International Day Against Drug Trafficking mm-hmm. I think it is, um, where uh, some nations have decided that the way to celebrate that, celebrate this day of action is to uh, um, is to have capital punishment occur for people that have been involved with drug crimes on those days. So, uh, murder on the day, celebrate it with murder. Um, state-sanctioned murder, though, so it's okay, right? Mm. Um, but that's that's what goes on. So, Support Don't Punish was set up as a response to that sort of thing uh, and uh, it was set up, I think it was 2015 or 2014. Um, so, five or six years now um, that Support Don't Punish... Yeah, yeah. 2014. Yeah. So five years um, that it's been going now. Uh, we will have an event on Wednesday, the 26th of um, June. Um, and you can find more events um, in capital cities and places around the world at supportdontpunish.org. Uh, support um, now, one of the things that's going to be happening there is launch, well, relaunching, rebranding, reconfiguring uh, Leap. Um, mm. Tell us a little bit about what's happening.
3: Yeah, thanks, Nick. Um, well, Leap has been sort of bubbling along for quite for a little while in Australia. And I was the, um, the representative here. And over the last uh, few months, uh, I've been developing a website. And I think, um, you know, the important thing is to be aware that LEAP is an international um, group with, um, you know, with uh, UK, US groups, Belgium, um, you know, a range of countries have now got LEAP. And LEAP was started back in the early 2000s by a group of police in the United States that said the war on drugs had failed and uh, they believe that we should be legalising all drugs. And that and that's, I guess, the premise that LEAP has been operating under for quite some time. So um, we, when I say we, LEAP will be promoting that in um, Australia through myself um, and the notion that we should be legalising all drugs.
1: Just, and just quickly as well, LEAP started off as Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, clearly stating it was Law Enforcement People that were against prohibition, but has changed more recently to Law Enforcement Action Partnership. Uh, and there's a reason for that, a, yeah. a good reason.
3: Um, yeah. Well, it was felt, particularly in the United States, that um, the the LEAP in the United States needed to engage more with a number of different agencies and uh, work together towards um, ending the war on drugs. And I guess the more they looked into it, the more they realised that, you know, to address the war on drugs, particularly in the United States and in other countries, Australia as well, you know, you need to address... The, the underlying causes the un you know what are the roots of this what 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 is what is driving this and obviously racism um, is is one of those issues and it was felt that um, in the states they really needed to focus on not only um, addressing racism but also human rights and, and the justice system so it was much broader a much broader discussion than just um, legalizing drugs so that's that's why they changed their name and that's why we've adopted that name for consistency in Australia but fundamentally. Um, in terms of what the work I'm doing, it's about legalising um, all drugs, and that includes all illicit drugs. So the, the the I guess the point of it is is to say prohibition, drug prohibition isn't working, it's failing, and we've already discussed why it's failing um, in the last few minutes. Uh, and on the 26th of June, I'll be um, speaking and promoting our, our new website and also letting people know that, that Leap is up and running and um, any person out there can join Leap and... We'll certainly be pushing an agenda in the next, um, you know, few months and beyond around uh, legalising drugs and having a community discussion about why we should be doing that.
0: So, mm. uh, is is it true, Greg, that the uh, Portugal um, uh, policy shift to uh, to change their attitude around illicit drugs was driven was driven by uh, the chief commissioner of police in Portugal at the time?
3: Yeah, well, uh, certainly the, the police at that level supported it. And, uh, you know, I, I think the thing with Portugal is, is that they decriminalised all drug use. And certainly um, drug law reform has worked best where police are supportive. Yes. And there are certainly lots of police in the UK that are now saying um, things aren't working, we have to change our approach. You know? it, and and it would that's...
0: seem the police are ahead of the politicians in the UK.
3: Well, certainly, um, we haven't had any police coming out and saying that they were regular cocaine users, like we have politicians. But um, uh, reform
0: a reformed cocaine users—they're
3: yeah. always reformed and, and yes, very that's right. contrite. That's right, and and of course, uh, when they were snorting, they didn't actually in snort. In snort, yes. they actually just just sniff. So um, yeah, it just goes all the way through. Yeah. So um, yeah, and I think the more people that come out like that, in terms of Gove's case. The, the the backlash has been around the fact that he was, you know, in Parliament when there were severe laws introduced around drug use, and That's this right. is the hypocrisy that we have. We see it all the time. You know, we see this hypocrisy constantly around um, drug laws. That are, you know, we we have a system now where um, you know um, people that use use illicit substances, particularly if you're um, of low socioeconomic economic Um, status or you're in an open place or you're at a particular festival or you just happen to be driving a motor vehicle and not affected by drugs you know those types of occasions are where police focus on and enforce the law law heavily but others who may be using you know who are sort of well healed sort of you know the the um (coughs) the um upper echelons um don't get targeted you know they rarely get prosecuted
0: well if you actually look at the prison numbers and you actually look at who's in jail and the backgrounds of those people come from jail. It's a very it's very hard not to come to the conclusion that the uh, the much despised term the underclass are representative way out of proportion in prison than they are than people who are the upper class and the controlling classes. Yep. And I think uh, it's a it's a it's a discussion we don't like to have anymore because they call it the politics of envy. And they call it the politics of being anti-aspirational. And unfortunately, it looks like that argument resonates with a lot of the community.
2: So I've actually got up on my screen here. We're talking about the cost of prisons. Um, It's just been public accounts and estimates hearings in Parliament. And so we have uh, some of the figures that have come from this year's budget. $1.8 billion for new uh, prisons and prison beds. $22.7 $22.7 million for diversion, rehabilitation and reintegration programs, which I might get a comment from, um, from the panel on shortly. $20 million of programs for women in prisons. But some of the figures that I just want to highlight here, since 2010, there's been a 90% increase in female prisoners, 180% increase in Aboriginal prisoners, and a 279% increase in prisoners in remand. So what does that that mean?
3: Well, it means that um, obviously we are incarcerating more people. In fact, I think Australia and Victoria has one of the highest rates of incarceration per head of population in the world. I think the only two countries, Brazil and the US, are above us in terms of number of people per head of population it's not who are incarcerated. Proud of. <laughs> it's not, we're not. We're not. We shouldn't be uh. singing the praises of that. We should be condemning that. Mm-hmm. And as Peter pointed out earlier, there are many countries in the world that are actually closing their prisons. Mm-hmm. So what are we doing? I think for a lot of what we do in terms of this, you know, these statistics, it's it's about particular, um, you know, particular groups within the community, particularly um, groups that have very strong influence in terms of government policy, the justice system. Um, the prison system, the police unions, um, they heavily influence uh, po- uh, politicians in terms of um, policy responses in this area. And, look, we know there have been incidents in the past where there have been some things that have happened which you know, we wouldn't like to see happen again. But it doesn't mean to say that we have to have this, you know, total knee jerk reaction where we go completely the opposite way in terms of putting people in prisons we you know we are incarcerating you know as ash just said more people than ever before and we shouldn't be doing that we shouldn't be you know in in this spiral of um you know digging ourselves further and further and further into into this pit of despair so i think we need to really change that around we need to change this conversation around
2: and so this this question of we've got over 3000 people now on remand in, in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Is this a knee joke response? Because we've had one or two incidents where somebody on parole or, or somebody in the community that maybe some people out there felt should have Absolutely. been in prison. Absolutely. Because we've abolished suspended sentences. Absolutely. You
3: know? And I think it's clear that governments do not like the impact of the front page of the Herald Sun. They, they will do anything to keep um, those types of... Uh, No bad news stories um, off the front page of the Herald Sun, and and they will they will you know throw any amount of money and any amount of policies um, towards you know that avoiding that sort of negative media. just quickly, this uh,
1: 3CR Radiothon, um, we're, we're talking about justice issues um, around drug policy at the moment, but if you want to donate to 3CR to keep everything that happens here going, and the voices that you hear on the frequency that you are tuned to, or the radio stream that you're uh, logged into on the internet, I don't know, uh, then 94198377 is the phone number. That's 94198377. Thank you to Gary Roberts, uh, who says that I don't need to do the housework, um, but we're doing a great job. Um, thank you Gary uh, I yeah I don't know we can send <laughs> send housework helpers and Tony Creeden of 3CRS come on come in as well thank you very much uh, for those donations 94198377 I've actually got a little um, a little slice from Support Don't Punish 2016 uh, from Tony Parsons from the um, Dandenong uh, Drug Court uh, which was the first of its kind in Victoria um, talking about the expansion of that program since then there is now a Melbourne Drug Court um, there's just the two of them but yeah and, there and is Tony one in Melbourne actually now.
0: works at the Melbourne at Drug the Melbourne Court one. He's moved. Excellent.
1: Um, But here he he was was in 2016 for Support Don't Punish.
5: Good afternoon. Uh, Thank you very much for the opportunity uh, to uh, speak at this important meeting today. Uh, I want to talk about uh, therapeutic jurisprudence, or TJ, in general terms, uh, but in particular about the work the drug court's doing. So I'll start off by making an obvious statement. I think obvious, and that is that there are two types of people that populate our prisons. There's a small group of really serious, nasty, evil people who scare the hell out of me, who should be behind bars for their own good, for the good of the community. We're not talking about that group today, we're talking about the other group, which is a much larger group, who find themselves populating our prisons because they have serious life problems that are inextricably linked to their offending, which gets them behind bars, and there's something we can do as a community for those people. The traditional approach of the criminal law hasn't worked. Research tells us that if someone commits an offence because they're homeless, When they're released from prison, if they're released into homelessness, they're going to offend again. If someone commits an offence and goes to jail because they've got a drug addiction, the research tells us if they're released back into the community and there's nothing done about the drug addiction, they're going to offend and go back again. Same with problems of mental health. If the mental health is behind the offending, they commit an offence, they go in. When they come out, and they've got to come out sooner or later, nothing's done about their mental health issues, they're going to go back in again. It's a revolving door. It's seen all over the world. In response to that issue, a concept called therapeutic jurisprudence started to develop over 20 years ago. Jurisprudence is a term that describes broadly the administration of the justice system. And therapeutic jurisprudence is the administration of that system underpinned by therapeutic Principles. Now, all that sounds like a mouthful, but it's really very simple. If the system addresses the problems that are inextricably linked to the offending behaviour, if we don't worry about punishment so much but deal with the problems that are connected to the behaviour, we can stop the offending. So if people's offending is because, for instance, they have serious mental health issues, and we can treat those mental health issues and resolve those, we're going to stop the offending. It's rational, it's logical, and now it's supported by the evidence. So there's two examples of TJ that I can quickly point to. One is the ARC list at Melbourne, the mental health list. That list brings people in who are in the criminal justice system because of difficult mental health issues. It addresses those mental health issues, and it has two outcomes. It improves the well-being and health of the person in the program, and it reduces or eliminates their offending. That's the subject of solid evidence. The second example of therapeutic jurisprudence are drug courts. It's the court that I'm involved in in Dandenong. Drug courts started out in 1989. The first one was in Miami, in Florida. So they've been around for more than a quarter of a century. In the United States there's more than 3,500 drug courts and they're in 20 different countries, including Australia. We have one in Victoria at the moment. It's the one I work in in the Dandenong region. But we've got more coming. That's a good news story at the end. How do they work? They're exquisite. They combine the coercive power of the criminal law. You do what you're told or you'll go to jail with the best treatment options that the community can provide. So what happens in reality is that there are people who are committing serious offences that are directly related to their drug and alcohol addictions. And our program at Dandenong is focused at the hard end. We're focused on the people who have intractable drug and alcohol addictions who've had those problems for often decades. We're focusing on people who've been in and out of jail most of their adult lives. 60% of the people who come onto the program have been to jail before. Uh, I'm sorry, 80% have been to jail before, and 60% have been to jail on multiple occasions. So we're focused on the hard end. And the way it works in practice is that I sentence them for their offences, applying the normal sentencing rules, their criminal history, the number of offences, the seriousness of the offences. If I decide they shouldn't get a jail sentence, they're not eligible for my program. If I decide they should get a jail sentence, then I sentence them to a term of imprisonment, but they have the opportunity to serve that term in the community as long as they do two things. They comply with a really rich, well-resourced intensive treatment program, and they don't commit serious offences whilst they're on the order. Now, it doesn't matter whether I send them to jail, whether I sentence them to six months, 12 months or two years, we've got our hands on them on this program for two years. And that's important because people with a long-term drug or alcohol addiction suffer brain changes. And the brain's a great organ. It can repair itself. But for those neurological pathways to repair, it takes 9 to 15 months of abstinence. So that's why we've got our hands on them for a really long time. And what happens is they come onto the order, and the first thing we do is we look at their housing. they haven't got safe, stable housing, they haven't got a chance. You and I wouldn't be having this conversation if we all didn't have safe, stable housing. We look at their physical health. If you've got a screaming ulcer or a toothache and you're addicted to heroin, it's the best pain relief medicine knows about. You're not gonna deal with your heroin addiction if you've got those physical health issues. So we screen their physical health. We screen their mental health. We look at any acquired brain injuries so we know how to work with them. We line them up with psychologists and psychiatrists and doctors who specialise in mental health. We organise uh, drug and alcohol counsellors. We set up individual treatment plans for each and every individual. And when they come on this drug court program, they're so busy that they don't have to look for jobs if they're getting a new start. They have to do supervised urine screens three times every week. If alcohol's a problem, they've got to test every day of the week. They've got to see their drug and alcohol counsellor once a week, their clinical advisor once a week, their case manager once a week. They've got to come into my court and see me once a week. And my role is to apply classic behaviour modification techniques. We can build all of these services around people, but we've got to push them along the right path, and that's my job. Behaviour modification, it's another technical term that means carrots and sticks. When I see positive behaviours, I've got a whole lot of rewards at my disposal and I incentivise that behaviour by rewarding people on the programme. Anything from praise, a round of applause, a couple of tickets to the footy, a supermarket voucher, or at the high end, I can actually reduce the jail sentence that sits over their head. And when I see negative behaviours, I sanction that behaviour. So a dirty urine screen normally cops a day's jail from me. And if they accumulate seven days jail, off they go into the cells to serve that time. Not the end of the order, it's about people being accountable, it's tough love. It's like our parents treated us when we were kids. There's rules in the household, if the kids don't obey it, then the parents do something about it pretty quickly. That's what I'm doing in the drug court. And it works. We've got a 40% success rate. Now that doesn't sound record-breaking, but if you think about the cohort we're dealing with, people who have been to jail multiple times, people who have struggled with alcohol addictions for decades. It's a huge outcome. And we measure our success with two measures. The first is the improvement of the lot of the person who's on the drug treatment order. We measure that in terms of their health improvement, their psychiatric improvement, and the reduction or elimination of their drug and alcohol use. And the second measure of success is the reduction is the is the benefits the whole community enjoys, the reduction of the burden of crime on their, on the community. And we've got very clear measures. People who complete the drug treatment order, two years after the completion of that order demonstrate a 34% lower recidivism rate than similar people who don't have the benefit of the drug court. We actually save, remember these people would be in custody but for the drug treatment order. We actually save the prison system every year, $3.8 million in prison bed savings. That's 14,000 prison bed days saved to the taxpayer a year. So it delivers massive benefits, uh, and it's quite a unique program. I think I must be running close to being out of time, so I'm going to just ask for any questions, but um, before I do, the good news is, But as part of the state government's ICE action plan, in the last state budget two months ago, the uh, Treasurer announced uh, an additional $32 million to build a drug court in the city. So now there'll be two, there'll be one in the city, but the one in the city is gonna be two and a half times the size of Dandenong. And it's gonna have a catchment area that's gonna reach out past Footscray, almost as far as Sunshine, down to Wyndham, Werribee. It's going to reach to the northern suburbs because the corridors of transport are so good, it'll go to the other side of St Kilda and it'll go and include Yarra, which is Richmond, which is where I live, and I can tell you that's a a hot spot if ever there was one. It's an asset that is desperately needed by our community, uh, and I'm delighted to be part of that uh, initiative uh, by the State Government. So I think that's enough. That's Drug Court 101.
1: And that was uh, was Tony Parsons at Support Don't Punish in 2016 uh, talking uh, about the um, Dandenong Drug Court, which has now been expanded to Melbourne, and that is where Tony Parsons is working right now.
4: Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au. Or call us with your credit card details on 039419 8377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to.
1: Phone number again, MV is waiting on the line, 94198377 for 3CR's Radiothon. Help us uh, raise money, keep everything that happens uh, keeping on. On three CR nine four one nine eight three double seven, and we're uh, sitting here with our panel <laughs> panel of guests. Um, so we just heard from Tony Parsons that was a few years ago. Still, some of the um, same issues, although there have been improvements, like a, a slight expansion of the um, Melbourne Drug Court program. Although it could still be expanded more, and also with the Drug Court program, maybe the uh, the, the other side, the dark side. Uh, Tony speaking glowingly of it. Of course, he works there; he has to. Um, but then the other side is that a lot of these orders. Um, are uh, really only for very, very specific people. You can't get into the drug court with minor offences, which is where the majority of people do get um, affected by these things. And uh, it is quite um, coercive, as I believe, as to what kind of behaviour. And, and, you know, there's certain things that maybe mm. aren't the best approach, but it's an approach that is palatable to our politic at the moment. There,
0: there, there is always going to be a question, because often therapeutic is used in a way that actually means behaviour change. And uh, one, of the, one of the drivers of um, most of these initiatives, and I'm not, in, I'm not for one second calling into question the motivation or really the, the goodness of people that really want to see good things done in places like drug courts, but we've got to be careful we don't create a different type of tyranny for these folk. No one talks about the rights of drug users and the human rights of the populations that are most affected by drug laws. And I think there's a whole debate we have to have as a community about what, what do we actually want our society to be? How do we want our society to be? How do we want it to be governed? And I, I'll give you a story from the 80s. The world changed with HIV. I'm old enough to remember what the world was like before HIV. And the one thing that was really interesting with HIV... And the, uh, the scare of AIDS was that suddenly people had to engage with people like injecting drug users, mainly out of fear of infection of the whole community, but they actually suddenly were given a voice. Prior to, prior to HIV and AIDS, no one talked to drug... I'll, I'll tell you one story. When I started working in St Kilda in the 70s, there was a cafe in Fitzroy Street called the St Kilda Cafe, and it had linonium tables and bad hamburgers, And it was well ahead of its day in terms of LBG2QI rights. They only had one toilet, so it was a unisex toilet. And in that toilet that everybody used, that used that cafe, was a syringe in the cistern. And people bought their drugs in the cafe and at the front of the cafe and they went and injected them with the same syringe that they got out of the cistern of the toilet. They used to sharpen that syringe on the tiles in the toilet. Oh... Because there were no, oh. it was very hard to get syringes prior to HIV. Of course. And can you imagine the harm that was done to people? Mm. And they were the days where I would see people injecting into their jugular oh. or into their eyeball because all their veins had collapsed. You know what? No one cared. You see a person bleed out because their jugular is so abscessed and swollen that it just explodes like a, like a piece of piping under pressure. They're dead in 10 minutes. Five minutes they're dead. This is the sort of way we treated injecting drug users.
1: And this was 20 years, 30 years ago? No, no, no,
0: no. Longer. Longer,
1: 40 years. yeah. Yeah, and this was, um, yeah, because I suppose um, there probably, I mean, was there much, um, there probably wasn't much injecting drug use until needles became a certain, no, like the technology no, no, reached a no, no. point no, no. until
0: oh, 1940s, I, 50s? I, I was in rooms on outreach where, where 20 people would share a needle mm. in that room. This is pre-HIV. And part of the issue... Part of the reason that Harm Reduction Victoria came into being was because people suddenly realised if we're going to prevent the spread of this virus, we've got to start engaging with the communities of people who are most vulnerable. And they saw injecting drug users as a gateway into the mainstream community of the virus. So it was uh, same-sex attracted men and injecting drug users that were the populations that they thought, we've got to start with education.
1: And those those two groups are still the main groups that are funded today um, to to provide that education service, the needle and syringe mm. programs because um, now I, I uh, like personally I'm not, I'm not an injecting drug user, but I know how to inject properly because I've been run through that education as um, everybody that's been involved with harm reduction does so if I, mm. I, I mean I might know for somebody the, the, else who will be able to
0: help the it's- first time you inject the drug, it will almost be in certain almost certainly be injected for you by someone else mm. Almost okay. certainly, I think. I think the figure, when they've ever done, you know, uh, surveys or talk to people about how when was the first time they injected and how did they do it, they always talk about, well, I was with someone and they showed me how to do it.
2: I remember chatting with um, Nick Crofts about some research that he did back in the eighties. I think it was, what and it 80s? was one of the first uh, surveys that they did where injecting drug users went out into the community right. to run the survey, and that's how they realised that because they were like, well. How, how is it that so many people are contracting hepatitis the first time they inject? And it was exactly that. It's, well, because you don't inject alone. You go, oh, hey, mate, like if I buy the drugs, can you show me how to do it? And then they'd share, a, share their equipment and, and that was it. That was how this um, transmission of hepatitis was happening in first-time injecting drug users.
0: Most of the policies that we've had in the history of drug laws are harm maximisation policies mm. and not harm minimisation policies. Because it's
1: been about morality. That's, mm. that's been a, it's, it's at all, the centre of a lot it, of these discussions. It's also
0: been a lack of recognition of the human rights of people that use drugs. And well, I, and this I, is that problem
1: I, with that term morality. Whose morality are we talking about? So
0: I think one of the, one of the, one of the things that we lose in this discussion... We lose the sense we are talking about human beings. We are not talking about monsters. We are mm. not talking about different species of, mm. of creature. We are talking about our brothers and sisters mm. and our children. And I was at a function on Friday and uh, I said, I've done a lot of presentations on drugs in my life. And I'll say to audiences all the time, I say, I've met a lot of 12-year-olds and 13-year-olds in my life. And the classic question an adult asks a child when they don't know them and they can't think of anything else to ask them, what do they ask them? What do you want to be when you grow up? Mm. And I've never heard a 12-year-old say, I want to be a drug addict. Hmm. Funny that. Mm. So this whole thing about the problem we have with drugs is that we don't have a rational discussion about it and we don't have a discussion that's based on people's rights.
1: It's far easier to otherise somebody and to put them over there and then use them as a political tool in your um, in your mm. little yeah. schemations. So on
0: the 26th of uh, June, just have a thought during that day of how many people in China and possibly the Philippines are being executed on that day mm. for no other reason than they are an illicit drug user.
2: Mm. And just to come back to your story about the... Um, Multiple people using the one syringe. The one place that I know that that still happens is in Melbourne Remand Centre.
0: Absolutely. Um, (laughs)
2: And you you might actually pay money to use that one available syringe um, that may be in the, you know, maybe the person that has HIV that has that syringe. And well, that's the one syringe that's available. 3,000 people on Mm. remand in Victoria right now.
3: And it does raise, um, I guess, the point about um, what we call, and the UN has this policy about the. Um the notion of equality and that that is that the um medical and health services available in the community should be equally applied as as in the um uh criminal justice system, in, mm. in the correctional system. So the UN actually has a policy about that, the 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 policy of equality, but we don't have that um we don't have that um equality. We don't have uh, needle and syringe programs in prisons. We don't have supervised injecting rooms in prisons. Um, so, um, and look, when when people leave prisons, basically they're just, you know, they walk out the door and the support services um, are very, very minuscule. They're not well supported. And we know that within a short time, many people will go back to using drugs and many people, um, you know... Several, you know, months down the track will will overdose, and uh, we we don't have that level of equality within within the prison system. So we need that level of um, equality in terms of health and medical services.
1: It's three CR Radiothon nine four one nine eight three double seven. If you're enjoying the conversation, donate and make the conversation continue to be had over and over, because uh, that's what we need to do. We've been doing this. This is our fourth year of uh, this show, and uh, some of the issues we were talking about four years ago are the same issues that we're still talking about today. It takes a long time uh 94198377, or, and you don't have to uh, donate today. You can pledge a donation on 94198377 or at the website, 3cr.org.au. Uh, Peter?
0: I was just going to say, Ash has got some really interesting figures around the projected justice spend in the future.
2: Well, this, this is actually figures from this year's budget. So this is this year... 1.8 billion was the the expenditure on new prisons and expanded capacity in Victoria. In Victoria, that's okay. just in Victoria. 22.7 million dollars for diversion, rehabilitation, and reintegration it's programs. 22 in million. Co- 22 million out
1: of 1.7 billion.
2: No no that's separate to the 1. Point, uh 1.8 billion. So w- any comments on that? I mean we know that that you were just saying that one of the risk factors for people leaving the justice system is that difficulty reintegrating to the community. To me that seems like not enough.
0: Well well the uh, rule of thumb in the w- if you want to do things around crime prevention and uh, and deal with justice issues in the community is that you should spend a third of your money on prevention a third of your money on incarceration and a third of your money on on what happens after incarcer- incarceration mm. now we aren't even spending 3% of our money on what happens after incarceration i mean that that is that any politician that supports that sort of funding should hang their head in shame i mean if real we really want to make the community safe then a lot of the work has to be done before people get into jail. It has to be done and continued in jail, and it has to be absolutely followed up for, for often years and months and years after they leave jail, if we're serious. Otherwise, we, we're, it's just a pantomime. It's just, a, it's just a, a shadow of what we should be doing.
1: We're quickly running out of time on the Radiothon um, special today, getting uh, into some themes that are, uh, you know, obviously there's some pretty broad discussions to be had around here. I mean, I wonder about the politics of perception in Victoria. Why is it so easy to other, some crowds and um, and not others in, in Victoria specifically? But these are these are broad discussions. Uh, as we have been saying, Support Don't Punish is on Wednesday, the 26th of June. Uh, there will be an announcement this week. So if you head to the Encyclopedia website, you can find out uh, the details for that Well you're on the website as well. So Sign the petition, uh, the roadside drug testing regime in Victoria, uh, which is um, uh, not. A scheme that's focused on impairment, and that's something we've talked about a number of times. But it's increasingly expanded, and the powers um, when somebody is detected, whether or not they're impaired. Um, uh, in New South Wales, we've just seen that now it's an automatic suspension of your license. You don't get to go to court about it; it's automatic. At least now we get to go to court in Victoria. But if you know these things ch- tend to have a bit of a trajectory, and uh, if Victoria is watching on in New South Wales, um, they might think that that's a mm-hmm. good idea. So we need to put that to a stop uh 236 signatures so far and that will be going to the victorian parliament uh so that's at the en psychedelia website npsychedelia.org.
2: uh oh we probably don't have much time i always like to leave on a positive note so in victoria we've had the medically supervised injecting room is is finally operational um i know both of you were well everyone on around this panel was involved in that some for longer than others um we also have the royal commission into mental health do you think Greg, Peter, do we have some positive directions happening in Victoria?
3: Look, I think the uh, I think the Royal Commission will certainly identify the fact that, I guess, from an alcohol and drugs perspective, that there there needs to be work done around how alcohol and drug and mental health services can better work together. I think that there is a real need to, um, I guess. Um, Have a a focus not only around dual diagnosis, but also, um, you know, we talk a lot about drugs, um, but we don't talk about the other issues in people's lives which, you know, are impacting on their drug use and may have led to, you know, a problematic drug use in the first place, such as, um, you know... um, Housing, um, employment, education—you know—early interventions in schools, early identify, early identification of young people that may have problems in schools around their mental health, mm. etc. So, I think that that's a positive thing that will come out of this. So, I think that's really quite critical. The getting back to the injecting room, the new purpose-built facility will open up in about a month, I think. So, next next month, so and that will double the number of suites that the um, that the centre can cater for it, it. it's I guess uh, uh, an improvement on the existing um, program there still needs to be some changes though in terms of I think the um, the operation of it in terms of the people that allow to use it and I think that that's really something we need to, to look at in terms of um, hours of availability and the criteria of um, people going in
1: Keep following us on social media we are um, completely out of time. Thank you very much to Peter Wern and Greg Denham for joining us in the studio for this Radiothon special and thank you Ash as always um, and uh, please donate 9419 8377 or at the website, 3cr.org.au. And uh, querying Nair is up next, so stay tuned. Uh, and if you've got donations for them, 94198377. Uh, there's also an SMS line, 0488. Oh, you're standing away, your the Ash. 809 <laughs> See you later.
4: <laughs> Comments, complaints or contributions are welcome. Jump on the 3CR website. 3cr.org.au and head to the Encyclopedia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email. Encyclopedia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, Direct Line provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-800-888-236. In Psychedelia, we'll be back on 3CR from 2pm next Sunday. This has been
2: a 3CR podcast. You can hear In Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.